This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Welcome back. I was at church this past Sunday in the new ward, sparsely attended because of the pandemic, everyone wearing masks. That was strange, but no different than what most people are experiencing at church, at work. And instead of singing songs at church, we, because of the masks, because of the pandemic, we just listen to someone play the songs. This past Sunday, the person at the organ was sort of a sort of a celebrity, actually. She is someone who has written a number of the primary songs. She's an older woman. She's in our ward, a composer. And she was the one who played the music that we all listen to only instead of singing to. Anyways, I was surprised. This is going to sound horrible, but I was surprised at how poorly she played the organ. I mean, she wasn't, she's better than I am. I mean, she's better than most people. That's why she's up there. But but compared to other people I've heard play, including the man who played the previous Sunday, she was, you know, she wasn't very good. She made a lot of mistakes. She was sort of bumbling and fumbling through. And I don't think it was because she hadn't practiced. I think she just isn't a great performer. She doesn't play like a professional. She's obviously musical because she's written all these songs that are in the primary book. And the songs are smart, and they're quick, and they're witty. And so she's got talent. She just doesn't perform very well. She doesn't play. She doesn't read the music and play and execute in that way very well. That's not her strength. I've read about this phenomenon before. People who play instruments quite well, and people who write music for those instruments quite well, often don't occupy the same body. Not always, of course. I mean, there are real geniuses like Mozart who played extremely well and composed extremely well. But more often, we're kind of one or the other. You're kind of a performer or you're a composer. And of course, composers have to be able to perform. They have to know how to play the instruments that they're composing in. Don't don't get me wrong. But the top performers, the very, very best performers are often not the composers. The composers, the people who write the music, that's a whole different group of people. Assuming that this is true, and it it may not be, by the way, but let's assume it is true. If you're struggling to make the Philharmonic or the symphony, you know, let's suppose you're in New York, you're struggling to make the New York Philharmonic, you practice and practice, you're good at your instrument, you just can't seem to make the cut because it turns out that you're not a world-class performer and you never will be. You're more creative, you're a composer. But you don't know that. Let's assume that for just a second. You're trying to make the Philharmonic as a, as a performer, but, but you're really a composer, and you don't know that. How frustrating. The great coach and basketball star Bill Russell once said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, every player on the team ought to do what comes most naturally to him and ought to focus on that. If you're tall and you can jump high, you ought to focus on rebounding, not dribbling, because it's going to be easier for you to rebound than it is for you to dribble. Focus on what comes naturally to you. A, Bill Russell said, you'll be more successful. And B, according to Bill Russell, you'll be way less frustrated. And you can let other people who have strengths in different areas 
perform those tasks for the team that you're not good at. That's what Bill Russell said. And there's some wisdom in that. Are you a composer or are you a performer? Are you a rebounder or are you a dribbler? Are you naturally patient or do you exude energy? Of course, this is not a novel observation. The reason I know it's not a novel observation is because there's a story called the ugly duckling, isn't there? And we're all familiar with this story. A swan, a swan chick, a baby swan somehow finds itself as a member of a family of ducks. And this swan chick thinks it's the ugliest of all the ducklings because the swan thinks it's a duckling, you know, a baby duck. And everyone treats it as if it's a duck and it's an ugly duck, an ugly duckling. But then over time, the swan grows up and lo and behold, turns out the swan's not a duck. The swan's a big, beautiful, huge swan, graceful, strong, and better than a duck. That's the way the story's told. The swan is superior to a duck, even though the swan thought it was not only a duckling, but the worst kind of duckling, an ugly duckling. You know, and the moral of the story is clear. If you don't fit in with the crowd, you might be superior to the crowd. You're, you might be a really strong, beautiful swan, a story we're all familiar with. And so, of course, this is not a novel observation. Of course, what the story of the ugly duckling leaves out, what Coach Bill Russell fails to mention, is the common experience. In fact, the statistically more likely experience that when you come to realize who and what you really are, where your strengths and weaknesses really lie, you may not find yourself on the superior end of things, right? I mean, because it's one thing to think you're an ugly duckling, and it turns out you're this huge, powerful, graceful swan. Well, that's awesome. But what if the situation is exactly opposite? What if you think you're a huge, beautiful, graceful swan, but you're in fact just a duckling? Or let's say you're not a bird at all. You're just a fly. What then? Is there any happiness to be found in that realization? What if you're neither composer nor performer? What if the best thing you can do is play the kazoo or the tambourine? What if you ought not even be on the team, Bill Russell? What if the best thing you can do is be the water boy or the towel person or sweep the court? No children's books tell that story, do they? But that's the complicated path many of us walk. You want to be married to the cheerleader. You want to be in the stake release society presidency. You want to be CEO. You want to be a rock star, an actor or actress. Not just an actor or an actress. You want to be a famous, successful, rich actor or actress. You want to get an A on the test. You want to be able to do the high jump. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Our ambitions, our desires, the things that we expect or hope, or things that we had inculcated into us by our parents or our church or teachers, that in spite of our best efforts, simply do not seem to be in the cards for us. There's another path, but that path seems vis-a-vis our expectations worse, or so we judge. Again, if you think you're a duck and you're trying to be a swan, windfall. If you think you're a swan, but then it turns out you're actually a mosquito, oh, that's not so great. And nobody's writing little jaunty books about that, are they? Or are they? 
there's a guy, St. John of the Cross, and he did write something about this very phenomenon, this very experience, although I wouldn't call it a little jaunty book. That's probably not what St. John of the Cross wrote. You know, if you take on a name like John of the Cross, can you write anything light and happy? I don't think you can. Anyways, John of the Cross was a Spanish monk and mystic, and he wrote this epic poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. And that that sounds really heavy, doesn't it? The Dark Night of the Soul. Oh, you know, nothing bright and cheery about that, particularly when it's authored by a guy named St. John of the Cross. You know, nothing good happens on the cross, or so it seems. And so why would anybody read this poem, this book, The Dark Night of the Soul? Well, there's something about it, clearly, that resonates with us. Well, what is it? What is St. John of the Cross talking about when he's talking about the dark night of the soul? Well, before I even attempt to address this, Let me digress with a quick story about Lake Huron. Lake Huron is one of the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are the lakes that surround Michigan. And the Great Lakes, Lake Huron included, they're they're incredible. They're enormous bodies of water. And though they're not quite like oceans, there are things about them that are ocean-like. The waves can get big on the Great Lakes. Not as big as the ocean, but but they can, you know, they'll, they'll knock you over on a breezy day. Well, one summer, my cousins and I were at Lake Huron, and it was a windy, windy day, and so the waves were big, and that's when the lake is really fun, when the waves are huge. It's fun to go out there and swim around and try to body surf and get tossed around the waves. It's fun. On this particular windy day, one of my cousins borrowed another cousin's wetsuit because it was kind of chilly and he didn't want to be cold. And so he borrowed our other cousin's wetsuit and he ran out into the waves. Big waves on this day. Well, before long, after being tossed around by these waves, my cousin began to notice that the wetsuit, which is already too big for him, began to fill up with water. And the wetsuit's heavy to begin with because it's too big. And now it's filling up with water. And before my cousin knew it, he was struggling to keep his head above the water. And the waves were pounding him. And there was a little bit of an undertow, and it was dragging him out. And before long, he realized that the weight of the wetsuit and the water inside the wetsuit was all becoming too heavy, and he had lost his buoyancy, and he was starting to sink. And he couldn't keep his head above the waves coming in, and they were pounding. And then there was this moment where he was below the surface of the water, and he realized that the wetsuit and the water and all that was too heavy, and he was not going to make it back to the surface. There was this moment of horror when he realized he was going to drown. Now, why am I telling this story? Well, there's this question. What exactly is the dark night of the soul? The dark night of the soul is not unlike that moment when you're trapped below the water with a wetsuit that you chose but is ill-fitting and now full of water and is now serving as a massive weight. The moment that you realize your choices, your path, whatever it is you thought was going to be so great and so much fun, has in fact led you to the bottom of the lake, and you're about to drown. That moment, well, that's the dark night of the soul. 
the horror at that realization, which seemed so instinctive, so unavoidable, so viscerally felt. That horror, that feeling of horror, that moment of realization of horror, that's the dark night of the soul. Or at least the feeling of the dark night of the soul is akin to that type of horror. The horror of impending death, the horror of impending obliteration and meaninglessness. Of course, St. John of the Cross wasn't writing about bodily death at all. He wasn't writing about dangers to our physical body. He was instead writing about spiritual or emotional horrors. Because of impending spiritual or emotional death of some sort, like those times when you realize you're not a swan, you're not a duckling, you're a mosquito. You're not a composer. You're not a performer. You sweep the floors. You're not a CEO. You're not in the Release Society presidency. You're not married to the cheerleader. Your middle management being phased out. Your spouse has grown tired of you. And your job is to pass out the hymnals. To some of us, to many of us, that feeling, that realization is as scary, as horrifying as being trapped underneath the surface of the lake. And it's this feeling, this despair, that St. John of the Cross writes about in his poem, Dark Night of the Soul. Not just limited to these things, by the way. The Dark Night of the Soul covers any disappointment, sadness, despair, when you realize that things aren't the way you thought they were, that they're quite different. They're, they're way worse. At least that's what you think in your own mind. And you enter this period where, well, nothing seems to be that great. Expectations won't be met. Goals won't be achieved. Your status is what it is, but far below what you wanted it to be. And what good can possibly come out of that, we think to ourselves. And so the only conclusion is that we're unmitigated failures. Commence Dark Night of the Soul. Depressing. Thanks, St. John of the Cross. Thanks for that. Of course, this entire analysis, this entire discussion thus far, has left out one important fact. We don't live in a world of absolutes. We don't live in a world that is. We live in a world that we perceive. We live in a world that we choose to believe exists. We live in a world in which we get to choose how we feel about ourselves. Our music teachers, Bill Russell, St. John of the Cross for that matter, our parents, teachers, spouse, etc., they have no say in the matter at all unless we give them permission. And that realization represents the exit from the dark night of the soul, the only exit. When you realize it's your own thoughts that are creating the darkness, then you realize it's your thoughts, your thought patterns, your paradigms, your beliefs. That is the exit door out. When you realize you can perceive the darkness differently, then it all changes. Of course, in order to do that, you have to be aware of your thoughts, right? You have to be mindful of your own thoughts. You have to think that your own thoughts are the problem and you have to start choosing better ones. And how do you do that? Well, you just start doing it. It's no trickier than that. People say, oh no, it's not that simple. There are all sorts of steps you have to take. 
Medicines, maybe therapy. You need to execute a five-point plan. Can't live in this fantasy world. You have to live in the real world. That's fine. If you believe that, go ahead and do that. That's great. But all these things are going to lead you to one place. I think it's probably a bold, brazen statement to say. Just some guy sitting in his office. But eventually, it's as simple as just choosing. Just choose for yourself what you're going to allow inside your head. And don't let anyone else choose it for you. I was at the DMV getting new plates for my car. I know this is an abrupt segue, but indulge me. Going to the DMV now during COVID, or maybe even a little post-COVID, is so easy. It is so much better than it used to be. It is fantastic. You go online, you schedule it, you're given a time. Then when you drive to the DMV, you text them and you say, hey, I'm here. And then they send you a text, come on in, come to desk, whatever. There are zero lines. It's the most efficient, easy, smooth thing I've ever seen in my life, at least as far as a government agency is concerned. I walked in, there was a woman there behind the counter. She was assigned to the desk that they told me to go to get new plates for my car. I said to her, man, this is, this is so easy now. This is just fantastic. Your, your life must be a lot better. Now that the pandemic has made everyone become more organized, she immediately launched into a tirade about masks and how dumb they were and et cetera, et cetera. And I frankly agreed with her. I mean, I've got some pretty conspiratorial theories about the whole pandemic thing, but let's set those aside. This is not a political statement or a political podcast. My point is that when I noticed and remarked about how much better things were at the DMV, she volleyed with the how horrible it is because we have to wear masks. Okay, is, is it better at the DMV or is it horrible because we have to wear masks? Of course, it's both. But what are you going to choose? Because what you choose matters about how you feel, A, in that moment, but also the trajectory of your next moment. What you choose invites light or darkness for the next moment and the next and the next. This is a silly thing, the DMV masks. But these are the type of small choices you have every day, all day long. Choices that on the surface may seem trivial, but they're not. There's a single overarching choice that you can choose to make every single day too. You can choose to allow God to guide you and heal you and bless you or not. It's true. Receiving God's guidance and blessings is a choice as much as anything else. And you choose it first and foremost with your thought or thoughts or the thoughts you choose. This past Sunday in my ward, the ward that was sparsely attended, the ward in which the music was provided by, well, a a composer, not a performer. This past Sunday at that ward, there was a speaker, the second counselor in the bishopric. He was this big, hulking, old guy. And I think it's a fair assessment to say he, compared to all the other people in the ward, was relatively different. I want to use the adjective odd, but we're trying to choose well here today, so I'm not going to go with that term. He was very different. His talk was about how we understand the Holy Ghost, how we can interpret messages from the Holy Ghost, how we can know whether or not inspiration is coming from the Holy Ghost. Not controversial at all for talk and sacrament meeting. But then he said that the way he understands the Holy Ghost is through visions and dreams. Told the story of a vision that he had of a light blue van pulling up to 
the business across the street from his own business, and thugs getting out of that light blue van to rob that business, and that he, upon seeing this, again, this is all in his dream, went out and confronted these thugs, these thieves or murderers or robbers or whatever they were. And in the dream, these thugs from the light blue van turned towards him and shot him and killed him. And he woke up startled and he thought, well, what does this mean? But since his experience with the Holy Ghost has been visions like this throughout his life, he chose to take this one seriously. So he took note of it, took a mental note of it. Anyways, a few weeks later, he was at his place of business early in the morning, getting ready for the day. The streets were relatively empty because it was very early. And he noticed on this particular day, a light blue van pulling up in the business across the street from his. And he noticed the guys getting out to maybe rob this business. And he remembered the dream. And he remembered that in the dream, he chose to confront these guys. And in the dream, those guys shot him and killed him. So this time, he chose to not do that. Instead, he just stayed inside his own place of business and looked out the window, which I assume was illuminated. And the three guys noticed that he was in the window inside his own building. And when they saw that he was watching or that he could see or could watch or witness what they were doing, they, they chose to get back in the van and drive away. What an interesting story. At the end of his talk, and again, th- this, is a, this is a very unusual guy, a guy some people would call sort of odd. But at the end of his talk, he said, if you want to know how God talks to you, which in our church, we, when discussing how God talks to us, we always bring up the Holy Ghost. But at the end, he said, if you want to know how God talks to you, in what form, thoughts or dreams or mysteries, or what you ought to do is kneel down. I'm not even so sure you need to kneel down, but you, but you need to pray. I'm not even so sure we need to call it prayer. You just need to talk to God and ask God and, and mean it and ask God, does he love you? Does God love? Do you love me, God? That's what this guy said. He said, you ought to kneel down and pray. I'm saying, I don't think it matters if you kneel down. I just think it matters if you talk to God and you mean it. I don't even think it matters if you call it a prayer. Just, just ask. And however that answer comes in response to that question, well, that's how God talks to you. And like all the choices, like all the perceptions, like all the emotional creations our thoughts produce, you can choose to do this experiment or not. But like at the end of last week's episode, I'm going to ask the same question. What have you got to lose? My cousin, who found himself at the bottom of the lake, weighed down by an ill-fitting wetsuit filled with water, at peak despair, felt two huge hands grabbing his shoulder and yanking him out of the water. These hands belonged to my other cousin, who had witnessed the first cousin struggling from the beach. So he ran out there into the water, pulled him up, saved him, but also showed him that he was in waist-deep water. When the waves came by, it seemed a lot deeper. But when the waves weren't there, it was just waist deep. The despair, the panic that my first cousin was experiencing was immediately dissipated, replaced by relief, understanding a new set of thoughts, perceptions. He was still in the water. It was still cold. He was still weighed down by a heavy wetsuit. But he had an entirely new mindset an entirely new understanding of what was, what could be. He wasn't drowning. He was saved. And so why should he think otherwise? Well, I've gone on 
far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.